we all have something inside of us, lurking in our mental DNA, that can either be the source of strength or destruction. It's time for the Earthling Spotlight, where we recognize an independent poet or novelist. This person not only excels in their field, but also moves the industry forward. York, who's it going to be this time? My special guest today is the science fiction writer, Gordon D. Lanyon. He has a new book. It's his debut novel called God Hunters. I read through this book and I was amazed that when it comes to world building, Gordon is ahead of his class. You're going to appreciate this interview, especially if you are a writer or a struggling writer. He's going to give you some tips, He's going to open your mind to different worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, put on your headgear and get ready for our interview with Gordon D. Lanyon. All the way from Victoria, B.C. How are you doing, Gord? Not too bad there, York. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Victoria, B.C. I've always wanted to go there. I'm all the way here in Ottawa. And you know what, Gord? You're my first Canadian on this show. I've had a whole bunch of Yankees, but you're my first Canadian. <laughs> well, from one Canadian to another, that's a great thing. Oh, absolutely. I read through your book. And I have this one burning question. I've always wanted to ask this for you. You are a retired teacher living the good life in Victoria. Why in the world did you decide at this stage in your life to write a book? Well, it's a, there's a bit of a story behind that, York. I hope you don't mind if I expand that a little. The answer might take a little bit of time. It kind of goes back to my high school, actually. I had two good friends there, my, my best friends. We were about 18. We were coming up on graduation, getting ready to finish up high school and move on to other things. We were kind of like the three amigos back there. We, we did everything together, walked the streets late at night. We solved all the world's problems without a drop of liquor in us. And uh, I guess we weren't too unlike any of the kids today. A little weird to think of myself at that, early, that young age, kind of wandering the streets, because that's about 2 a.m. in the morning. And yeah, we used, to, we used to do that, and we used to talk a lot. It was just this camaraderie. One of my friends, Bruce Johansson, he was the first to get a job. You're hired. First to get a van. Beat up old thing that he liked. He was also the first to get a full-time girlfriend. I love you! The van came with some perks, of course. <laughs> and then there was Arthur Winnick, my other friend, and he was quiet and thoughtful and introspective. And he was the artist. He used to uh, draw pictures of castles and dragons, and he was kind of really into the fantastical. The three of us, uh, Art and I, were the most alike. We were both readers. We loved science fiction. We loved fantasy. A lot of his drawings reflected that. They were beautiful, black and white pencil drawings mostly, but wonderfully vivid. I can remember one night in particular, we're out late. Graduation was closing in, and we were feeling kind of a little wild. This night, we'd had a few drinks, nothing too much, just enough to get the juices flowing. We'd already walked for a couple of hours. We were just talking, aimless chatter about nothing. And then we came to the park, and Bruce, of course, challenged us to a race. And I remember running the length of that park. 
until I fell breathless at the end of the field and just sort of on my back looking up at the stars. Something that I could never imagine doing now because I'm, I'm an old guy now. We just lay in the grass talking about our futures because, of course, that part of our life was a mystery to us. We were so young. People always tell you when you're young, you can be anything you imagine. All the pathways aren't as clear. I don't actually remember what we came up with, but I do remember one thing which was weird. I remember picturing a beautiful blonde woman in my life. And, and guess what? You know, that's what I ended up with, my, my Linda. She's a beautiful blonde woman. One of the reasons that I started writing was that as we were imagining, imagining a future, one of my good friends, one of them, Arthur, had been holding back on a secret. We learned he had cancer at 18. And I guess that week he learned it had metastasized. They gave him a year to live. This was pretty devastating because, of course, you know, we were 18 at the time. And I remember thinking that this can't be true, you know, because 18, we're immortal, right? We can't die. But it was true. Kind of changed everything. The future was was then, that moment. And it was then that Arthur started writing quite a bit, wrote poetry, stories of Atlantis, stories taken from his drawings. And because I was his friend and I was trying to spend as much time around him as I could, he kind of pulled me in. I think he wanted to put his stamp on something, leave behind something of himself that proved he'd been there, that his life had been for something. You know, I got pulled in. We started a lot of projects together. Downstairs, I've got a binder full of them. The sad thing is we really never finished anything. A new idea would catch our interests. An old idea would peter out. Nothing ever came of our writing. Before he was 19, Art died. I can remember that year. That was a brutal year. Bruce and I graduated. We got jobs that took us to different places. And I learned that year that life can be incredibly sad. But I also came away with a love for the written word. And that was Arthur's gift to me. I became a teacher. I did continue to write a little bit on the side, poems and short stories, but nothing big. But I was resolved that when I finally retired and had the time to write, I would write a novel and finish it. That's why after I retired, I, I had the motivation to write this novel. And that's why I dedicated it to my two best friends. That's pretty incredible. I guess that was a pivotal moment of your life that changed you and made you see how, how precious time is. Uh, absolutely, uh, York. Sometimes you learn the most in the most difficult times. I try to hold on to that story. I try to keep it as like a guiding light in my life as much as possible so that I appreciate the people around me and the people that I get to know. That was probably the motivation for my, my writing. This book is packed with action, philosophical ideas. It also has mental rendezvous. What was your process in putting this book together? This book is actually the product of about three years of work. First of all, I'd like to say I'm pretty proud of it because I actually managed to write the end on one of my projects and mean it. It really was the end as a novel. The novel's a couple hundred pages long, so it was full of planning. It has some, some body to it, uh, so it's, you know, I think it's a worthwhile read. But anyway, it took me about three years to write. I started when I was still teaching. I think if you're a good teacher, teaching takes a lot 
of your free time as well as the time when you're actually doing the teaching. So I didn't have a lot of time for the actual writing. So I would write a little bit. I would have to put it aside for a while. It's a good thing because, you know, you go back and you see some of the things that, that you don't like and you come back with some new ideas that you want to insert into it. But what I found is that I'd be six chapters in and because I had left so much time, I'd have to go back to chapter one and start reading there. And as I started reading from there to catch myself up, I would find, oh, I don't like this. And so I'd, I'd rewrite it, put another a new idea in or whatever. By the time I got to chapter six, the end of chapter six, well, I'd edited six chapters and I'd done a lot of writing. So I might only do one more chapter. Then I'd have to stop again because I'd be taken away to teaching event during the weekend with volleyball and basketball. And kids take up a lot of your time and they can be fairly mentally exhausting. Your book talks about the beast within and how it could be a source of strength or destruction. Do you feel that everyone has a beast living inside of them? It's official. What a Curthling Studio is now open. If you are a writer that has a podcast or is thinking about starting one, I could help. Editing and producing a show is challenging. So much technical stuff to remember. I could edit and sound design your show that would match your content. I'm already working with a couple of fantastic podcasters, and I'd like to work with you. We could set up a 30-minute online discussion to see if my services will work best for you. You know, we have to be a perfect match. Relax, though. There's no pressure and no tricky sales tactic. Leave your info on the contact page of my website, poeticearthlings.com. Back to our conversation with Gord Lanyon. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Actually, I, that was part of the motivation for the whole concept of the beast. I always thought that we have the two parts of our personality: the, the good and the bad. I just expounded upon it a little bit and used it in my book. Uh, you have the the guy that's in, in the checkout line, a nine item checkout line, and somebody's ahead of them, and they get, instead of nine items, they got a whole cartload of goodies. Well, you could let the beast out and go to town on that person, or you could be the nice guy. So there's a two-part to the personality. I think you asked before whether or not it was a good thing. And one of those two-edged sword type scenarios could be bad in that checkout line, but it could also be good in an emergency situation. Sometimes you need the beast for that little extra energy. might let you save somebody, give you that little extra bit of strength. There's been lots of stories of people that somehow find the superhuman strength to do some incredible and save somebody. And that's kind of the beast in them coming out. Now, that reminds me of your book in chapter 10. One of my favorite chapters is when your main character noticed a huge disaster, the whole neighborhood all of a sudden just sunk down and thousands of people were trapped. Emergency personnel were everywhere. I stopped my mouth open. An entire street in front of me was gone, dragged into a long cut in the earth that started shallow and ragged but extended far into the distance. The quake hadn't just shaken the ground and knocked out a few windows, but literally swallowed a whole block of the city. Entire houses had been pulled into the ruptured earth. 
I heard voices of men and women calling instructions as they worked to move especially large pieces of rubble. I heard shouts of joy and cries of anger. There were other people lining the periphery of the ragged trench. Lots of them. There were also bodies, all lined up along the cut line, plastic thrown over them so that all that was visible was a hand or a foot. As my eyes lingered, I realized there were family members around them. Men, women, children, just standing on the outside, watching and crying. And he just sprung into action. I'm not sure if that was his beast, but he just sprung into action and he had superhuman strength. Speaking about the negative part of that, when you're talking about the checkout line, just over here where I live, mm-hmm. I had like about two or three things in my hand. I went to the quick checkout line. It says one to 10 items. This lady had like about 500 items. I was tempted. I mean, you know, like the beast within, I was tempted to say, hey, lady, you have 500 items. I have like two or three items in my hand. Can I just get ahead of you? (laughs) I probably should have did that. I would have gotten home faster. It was the anger part that that was trying to come out and I had to push that down. It definitely reminds me of your book. And of course, there's always the, the, the times when you go and you, you come up to a lineup and there's a guy ahead of you with maybe three or four items and they see you have one and they just step aside and say, oh, you only got one. Go ahead. Lots of people have, they let the, the good beast win. I, like, I always try to be optimistic about people, but I do recognize, and I think it's in my book, that there are the two facets to everybody's personality. And anybody that says they don't have that little beast within them is kind of fooling themselves. And that's a good thing about your book is that your characters, they battle a lot with each other. There is no good guys or bad guys. There is, but it's murky. I think the best books and the best movies is when the heroes are also flawed. Your main character is flawed. Even when I was reading it, I said, wait a second, is, am I rooting for the bad guy? Is he the villain? <laughs> Even though he is truly a bad guy, as you learn kind of at the end, he has motivations. He's just trying to survive. He just has no limit on what he'll do in order to survive. So there are some parts, some facets of his personality that you can relate to and you can say, well, I can understand that. When I read books, that's what I look for too. I I don't want just black and white because to me, that's not real. I don't want to read a character that just runs over anybody. Because that's not real either. In the movies, uh, John Wick. We call him Baba Yaga. The boogeyman? Well, John wasn't exactly the boogeyman. He was the one you sent to kill the boogeyman. Oh. John. It's a man of focus, commitment, sheer will, something you know very little about. I once saw him kill three men in a bar with a pencil. One, two, and three. I like John Wick, the first one, 
because, you know, he was pretty superhuman, but he took a lot of pretty good beating. John Wick 3, I mean, he was rolling through hundreds and hundreds of people, and he just lost me. I think that's a good example of going too far with the character. You, you have to keep it real if you want your audience to accept what you're proposing, what you're, what you're trying to get them to accept, because it isn't real anyway. It's just it's imagination. It's a story. They have to have a way to step into that story. And if it's not too far from reality, they're, they're not gonna, the step is going to be too far for them to take. And that's the good thing about your book is that the main character, he takes a lot of abuse. You didn't hold back. And I appreciate that because the best stories are the ones where the star is down on the floor. He's grasping for breath. He has one final straw, one little bit of energy left in him. You're holding on in anticipation. Can he make it? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I felt. You made your characters uncomfortable. And when you do that, when any story or any movie that you watch, when they do it, when they do it well, it definitely pays off. And your book pays off because I had to stop my breath many times and I thought, he couldn't just kill off the main character or he couldn't kill off this other character. What is he doing? That's the mark of a good writer. Truly appreciate that. I tried to write it from the point of view that this was, was all new to him. He can't become super powerful overnight. He can't become, he can't win every fight and every battle because that's just not real. It should be a learning curve for him. Along with that learning curve, I, I tried to give him some of the motions I, I thought that a normal person would have that you don't often see in, in novels or, or movies about very strong protagonists. He got a little depressed. I tried to put in a little bit that he was unhappy with the way his life had gone because suddenly he was fighting for his very existence. And that's not a natural thing. I think you have to recognize that. He's definitely on an unlikely hero. And the world that you created, speaking about the world, it's just, it's just incredible. I always respect authors that are good at world building. And you took your time at, at this, I could tell. This novel was written over a period of about three years. And well, it was because I was teaching at the time. Everyone thinks you go in and you're just there from nine o'clock to three o'clock and wow, you get to go home. But the after hours stuff is, can be quite demanding as well. When you have kids around you all the time, mentally you're pretty exhausted. Whenever I did have a bit of time and a bit of energy, I'd go back to the story and write. What I found is that I'd, I'd get like six chapters in and then I hadn't been at it for a while. So I'd have to go back to chapter one and I'd kind of read through the chapters to kind of get my bearings again because it's all the little details as your, as your world book uh, building. You know, you forget yourself and you have to kind of catch up. But then I would add new ideas and I would rewrite it. And by the time I got to the end of chapter six again, where supposedly I'm supposed to start, I was already tired. So maybe I would, re I would write two more chapters kind of staggered building of the world. That turned out to be a pretty good thing in the fact that I think I, I built a convincing world, a world that was different as well and, and had a lot of structure to it. On the negative side, it took me a lot of time to write it. Now, do you build an encyclopedia? I know some writers, authors do this. Is that what you did to remember 
how things are structured? I use a mind mapping program called Simply Mind. I did the whole novel out before I actually wrote a single word. I had it all chapter by chapter and chapter and some of the history of the characters and such. And I, in my mind, I thought, well, this is exactly how it's going to go. And boy, I, you know, aren't I smart because I've, I've written it this way. I've got it all planned out. I was also an English teacher. You have your, your initial incident that starts off the plot, brings the characters together, and then you have your rising action, and then you have your, your climax and your anticlimax and your denouement and such. And so I had it all structured that way. And then what I found happened, about chapter six, let's just say, the characters took on a life of their own and they started to write the story. Sarah Walker hid within the deep shadows of the room. She was in the same office building her team had searched. Her colleagues complained that waiting was the worst part of the job, but for her, it had never been difficult. She'd been right enough times that waiting was worthwhile, even pleasurable akin to the anticipation of a favorite meal or good sex. As she leaned into the shadows, unnaturally still for long periods of time, she likened herself to a spider. Before her lay the net, invisible, but ready for the fly. I remember coming to a point thinking, this is taking me a little off track from my plan. Should I allow this? And what I came to realize was, yeah, you gotta, you have to let your characters breathe. She corrected herself. This was no fly she waited for. This was a predator, a killer. What did it take to stop a killer? She smiled, showing her teeth. Whomever had murdered those men would find out. She wanted to thumb the safety off her gun, but resisted the impulse. Movement betrayed position. There must be no movement. Nothing to give the hunter away. The door was the key. You have to let them write the story. I mean, it's their story. You know, you're just writing it. And if you have, if you believe in your characters, you've got to let them go. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful how you said that. And that is so true. There are some stories that I write that the characters are doing things that I didn't intend them to do. And I heard this analogy before when it comes to writing is, holding a little bird in your hand. If you hold that bird too tight, that bird is not going to live. If you're too loose with the bird, it's going to fly away from you. There's a delicate balance. The characters believing that they're going to take the story forward and it's their story. I think that is profound what you just said. I'm not sure about profound, but it's, it's exactly what happened. I came to respect that. And in fact, that became part of the motivation to finish the story because they became enough alive in my own head that I sort of felt guilty when I didn't go back and add a little bit more to the story. In my head, I kept thinking, their story is not finished yet, and I've got to let them tell it. I'd go back and I'd use that as inspiration to continue. Now, all art that we create serves a deeper purpose. What meaning or messes do you want your readers to get from your books? I really was writing the book for a couple of reasons. And the first reason I already mentioned that I wanted to be able to put my friend's name in the book, even if it was just an acknowledgement section so that he could live on a little bit and that we could have have something that we sort of did together. The other thing I wanted to do was just provide a little entertainment. I guess another inspiration for the book was that 
I would watch movies and I would, at the end of it, I would say, geez, that was a great movie. I sure really respect the people that put this together. They're so lucky. They created something and there it is. When you're teaching, it's really difficult to see what you've done because it's, it's not visible. You've taught kids something, you hope. It's not a visible kind of thing that you can see. After 35 years of teaching, I, I wanted to do something that something I could hold in my hands, the end copy, the book, and say, yeah, Gord, you, you did this. After you pass on, this will still stick around. And that, that's actually kind of a good feeling. That definitely is. It's such a good feeling to have a book in your hand, a book that you wrote. If you were exiled on a deserted island and you could only bring two books with you, just two books, Gord, what books will you bring and why those two? Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes. That one was all about the devil coming to town and setting up a little shop. The shop called Needful Things. And people would go into the shop and of course they'd always find that one thing that they thought they really needed and the devil would give it to them for whatever, for seemingly a little, almost nothing. But then they took that thing home and it came from the devil. It wasn't actually a needful thing. It was something that was made uh, made to destroy their lives. So the whole town was basically falling apart. I always thought that was a good, a good message. And even when I was young, when I when I read that, and I have gone back and read it a couple times again, but I always thought the idea of thinking too strongly that I need that or this or that thing over there or a little bit jealous of my neighbor because he's got that brand new car. Maybe I need that. I always thought that was that was a really good message, and I've always kind of uh, held that held that close to heart. And I can make you young again. I can turn your years back for you. Let's say thirty. Speak, but you've missed it. Growing. On a totally different bent, I guess the novel that I would like would be Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. What struggling people like himself had stood at that crossway, who nobody ever thought of now. It had more history than the oldest college in the city. It was literally teeming, stratified with the shades of human groups who had met there for tragedy, comedy, farce. Real enactments of the intensest kind, he began to see that the town life was a book of humanity infinitely more palpitating, varied, and compendious than the gown life. This is a novel I I read when I was in university. It's all about these two lovers that try to get together and all of the, the terrible things that happen to break them apart and they just keep struggling and struggling and struggling. And you kind of learn that there are mountains and valleys in life. You just can't let the mountain overcome you because there'll be a valley just over the rise. You gotta keep going. When it comes to self-publishing, back in the day, it didn't receive the respect and and also the adulation as, as traditional publishing. But now the tide has changed. Why did you decide to self-publish? Okay, that's that's a good question. I'll go back to the novel. I, I wrote the end at the end of it. Uh, so I finished it. I edited it a number of times, and I thought it was ready for somebody to look at. I knew it wasn't ready to be published yet. 
because it was just all me, every bit from the very first word to the last word. This is when I had to decide, do you go indie, because I, I knew about it, or do you go traditional? Now, if you go indie, you're your own publisher and basically your own business. The buck for everything stops with you. The big advantage of that, of course, is that all the work that you do isn't for nothing, as it could be in the traditional marketplace. In the traditional marketplace, your book might never see the light of day. You could work for three years like I did. No one might be interested in the indie market. Product's going to see the light of day. It's going to be published. There are negatives to that as well. In a traditional marketplace, you're part of a team. If somebody takes you on and takes your work on, what you publish is going to be a little bit more professional. As an indie writer, my work is uh, more rough edges because of that, because I just don't have the team behind me to help me iron them out. That was really a difficult thing for me to accept. I put a lot of work in the book, and I wanted to put out the most polished work that I could. Traditional marketplace publishers have a lot of incentive to help you because, of course, its success is their success. So they do a lot of tidying up for you, and they do a a lot of the marketing for you. As an indie writer, a lot of that sort of stuff is what you have to do, particularly the marketing. I don't like that part of it, but you have to do a little bit of it. The marketing part is it's very difficult, very difficult to, to market yourself, to really promote it. You're traditionally published. You have the team with you, and they could help you to push your book into various regions. I did try uh, the traditional market. I, I can't say I tried it very hard. <laughs> I sent out a chapter to whatever the publisher said they wanted about six different traditional publishers. And then I waited and waited and waited. And I don't think I can honestly remember getting back even one letter of rejection, which I guess I would have accepted. But the fact that I got nothing was disheartening. So it was like I'd taken all my work for the last three years and dropped it off my balcony to the forest below. That was what really pushed me on to go with the indie. And what I did at that point is I. I looked up an old friend, a guy that I really admire. He's a brilliant, a brilliant friend of mine. And I asked him if he'd mind helping me iron out the bugs of my work for a small stipend. I mentioned that it was very small. <laughs> Thankfully, he was happy to come on board. And together, we went through the book multiple times and re-edited and refined what I'd done. And he was wonderful. So thank you, Marlo Irvine. This is a guy that knows something about everything. I'll be able to tell you an interesting story about, about it. I remember my history right. Francis Bacon is supposed to be the last Renaissance man, and that's defined as the last man that basically was able to know everything there was to know about science at that time. Well, I, I think that they're wrong. I think Marlo Irvine is that guy here, the 21st century. He, he knows something about everything. and He's just a really cool dude. Is he going to be helping you out with, the, with your second book in the series? I hope so. I haven't hit him up with that yet. I, basically, I try to get it as edited and error-free as possible before I, I bother anybody. I think that's the best way to go. I was dealing with another writer, and he showed me his book. He sent it to me for free, and so I read through it, and it was very clear right away that it's, it's not edited. I think you have to be honest with people, though. There's degrees of honesty, and you don't have to be mean. You just have to be clear. I find a few things that you like and uh, and spend some time on the fact that really if you're going to send stuff out you should spend more time polishing it as best you can maybe he'll tell you surprisingly enough that was his polished product 
then you know that that he's going to have a little trouble and there's no probably no sense going on. Can you give us a brief synopsis of how are you going to take your story, God Hunters, where it's going to go into the next book? Sure, I can definitely do that. Just going through your podcasts and that you use the word exclusive for to define your work. And I just love the way you did that because basically what you said is that your work is exclusive to the people that are interested in it and want to listen to it. If you're not part of that exclusive group, you don't have to. I'm the same way. I, I feel the same way. If somebody doesn't like my work, that's that's okay. It's exclusive to the ones that do like it and are interested in it. That's right. You're not writing for everyone. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Next novel, tentatively titled Something Wild, Something Wicked, Something Wounded. Protagonist's love interest is Walker, and she is a meta human like him, but she is not as in control as he is. At the end of the first novel, without giving too much away, she basically breaks under the pressure. There's a dichotomy between the beast side and the human side. Usually there's a balance between the two of them. That balance has been broken. Follow-up novel is about Walker's struggle to get that under control. And of course, Nick coming to her aid and trying to help her through the process. The other characters, Kat and Meta, they're uh, having problems as well. The end of the first novel, the person they were hunting and they were supposed to bring back the body, they weren't able to do that. And the Grand, Grand Council, thinks that they're lying. So they've decided to send Kat and Meta to the to the vats for recycling. My characters are, are not up for that, so they escape. So they're on the run and being pursued. Over there. We got Walker running and being pursued. We've got Kat and Meta running and being pursued. We have Nick trying to catch up and help Walker. And we got the Grand Council who has decided that these people are to go and they've sent two soldiers, the best they have from home world. These two soldiers' job, it is to bring everybody back for punishment. And these guys never stop because they're not human. They don't need to rest and they're well motivated to succeed. Failure for them means a return to the prison pods they left. They'll do anything to prevent that, kill anyone. I think I did all the all the world building I really needed in the first one. So there's not as much of that. And so I think this one's a lot easier to read. Yeah, because you did all of the heavy the heavy work on the first book. Usually when it comes to those type of books, science fiction, fantasy books that deals with world building, the book itself is bigger. There's more words, right? Because you need that. Then on the follow-up books, you just go more into the action. You don't have to explain as much. I'm looking forward to that book coming out. I'll definitely promote it here on the show. Is there a timeline? About a month away from sending it to my editor. Probably going to be about eight months. How many books in the series will there be? Well, we talked about the fact that the characters seem to write the stories. I don't know. I can't give you a good answer to that. I think that after this book, I'm going to see how it goes. Then I might leave it for a little bit and write something else. This first book was by my start as a writer, another writer asked me, I'm not sure I'd suggest starting out with a series. It's good to not let yourself get trapped into one storyline where you have to write 10 novels in a row about the same characters doing 
the same kind of thing, saving the world and all that. You can maybe go out and try something totally new. I might do that. I, it depends. It depends how what kind of reaction I get from the uh, the follow up book. I'm with you as well when it comes to writing stories. It's hard for me just to stick with one story, a continuous story. I tried that before, got bored of it. I always have to switch things up. It's also it's going to stretch you as a writer. It's going to stretch those mental muscles to figure out new worlds and new situations. These characters are pretty strong in my head. They may push me forward to continue their story. You are an incredible writer. One thing that I like about your book is that it's a huge meal. It's a deep book. It's full of action and it's full of things that you have to think deeply on because you stretch the boundaries. You go from dream world into reality. Between reality and fantasy all time. What's the best way we can reach out to you? Twitter handle, glanyon56. I have my website, cordlanyon.weebly.com. Instagram, glanyon56 as well. If they want to get in touch with me, the website, I've got a contact page there. In fact, I'd love that if they want to send me an email. I always respond to emails. Sometimes I, I have had a few people write me in with suggestions already. And I always find that interesting. Sometimes they're quite different than what I was thinking. What I'm going to do is I'm going to set up everything on my website, poeticearthlings.com. There's also going to be some links on the, on the show notes to this episode as well. All of my listeners could get a hold of your book, could see what you're doing and figure out when the next book is coming out as well. So everything is going to be there for you. If any one of your listeners want to be a beta reader for my next book, that would be appreciated. Okay. All right. That's good. I'll put the word out as well on the on my website. It was definitely a pleasure speaking with you, reading through your debut novel, God Hunters. I can't wait to see what you have next in store. Thank you so very much for being with us and also for being a fabulous Earthling. Well, thank you very much. I very much enjoy your work as well, Poetic. Thank you to my special guest, Gord Lanyon. The God Hunters is available on Amazon and Kindle. You could follow Gord online on Twitter and see what he's up to. All of the links is in the show description of this episode. My website, poeticearthlings.com, will give you some more information. Do me a favor. Tell a friend about this show. That is the number one way of spreading a podcast. Let them know what you've been listening to so that they will get into it as well. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe or follow. Thank you to Brent Stark. He's the host of the incredible podcast, Most Precious Commodity. Thank you to Tiffany C. Lewis. She's an amazing writer. She was on this show as well not too long ago. You could check out her website, Rebellion Lit. Special thank you also to Alex from Time for Your Hobby podcast and Timothy Kim O'Brien, the head instigator at Create Art Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 
remember, show compassion to your fellow human. And I'll talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, the beast. Say hello to my little friend. Produced by my old man, York Campbell. Poetic Earthlings. Music by Epidemic. Sound.